Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 17th. It's early afternoon on a warm, late winter or perhaps early spring day in the Bay Area in San Francisco. I'm thrilled that my guest today is also from the Bay Area. So we're going to have a very Bay Area kind of conversation. Um, We've done a lot of shows over the last few months, particularly in COVID, about how broken the American medical system is, the healthcare system. Uh, We did a show even this morning about the the crisis of uh, Big Pharma. But there's another side of the crisis of the American healthcare system that in some ways is even more challenging and worrying, and that is the crisis or the perceived crisis of the American mental health system. I did a show earlier this week with um, a lovely therapist, uh, a woman called Ronnie Cohen-Sandler on raising teenage girls in the age of the internet. But it was also the age for Dr. Cohen-Sandler of anxiety. It seems as if there's an epidemic of anxiety on teenage girls and boys, but particularly girls. And wherever you look on the internet, um, there are references to a a global epidemic when it comes to mental health. Here we have The Guardian, um, Psychiatric Times uh, asks whether the country is experiencing a mental health pandemic. Of course, this language of Pandemic is now natural to us in our age of COVID. Um, Another academic asked whether mental illness is the next U.S. epidemic. We've got epidemics on on our hands, uh, on our minds. Um, And Axios, very distinguished online publication, asked whether America's shadow epidemic is of uh, mental illness. Uh, I even found an interesting reference to us being hollow men, whatever that means, the worldwide epidemic of mental illness. Uh, It's a very serious issue, particularly for people with parents or relatives who are suffering, or or children, of course, who are suffering from mental illness. And I'm really thrilled and honored today that we're talking to one one of America's leading authorities on mental illness. Uh, His name is Dr. Thomas Insall. He's currently uh, California's mental health czar. He's also uh, in a very uh, distinguished career, run the National Institute of Mental Health, and he's the author of a new book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. It's out next Tuesday, but I'm thrilled that he's talking to me today from his home in Pleasanton in the East Bay. Uh, Tom, welcome. Uh, Epidemic, is that... An exaggeration? Are we over-dramatizing the crisis of mental health in an America already riven by the the epidemic of COVID? Well, first of all, Andrew, what a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you today. Epidemic. I I don't know that that's helpful. I, I think we're in a crisis. I think we were in a bit of a mental health crisis before the COVID pandemic, but it's so important to realize that you know, COVID was a pandemic about an emerging illness that we didn't know about before, that was related to other uh, other forms of SARS-CoV-2. But what is different about the mental health crisis is it's not 
It's not an emerging illness. These aren't new problems. These are problems that have been with us for a while. We have a crisis, but not because of an epidemic. We have a crisis because of a failure of care. It's a care crisis, not, not a pandemic in the sense that we now have a new problem that we have to figure out what to do with. Um, so I, I do think it's important we, we're careful about our words. And I, I, and I think it's useful to say, yes, we're facing a mental health crisis, but I think we need to understand this is, this is of our making. This isn't something that is new. It's not something that we need to begin to understand like what, what's causing this. We know a lot. We actually know what to do. Uh, and to be really clear, we used to be much better than we are today at how we face the same challenges of serious mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar illness, severe depression. These are disabling, they're deadly illnesses. Uh, we're in a crisis around them because of our failure to be able to take care of the people who have these illnesses that have been with us for centuries. Tom, uh, I think it's important that we do focus on semantics. You underline the importance of defining our terms. We had, and I'm sure you know her work, Lucy Falks, an academic from the UK. She has a right. she had a new book out last year, Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't. Do you want to have a shot at defining it? You've spent your whole life in the industry one way or the other. Yeah. I know that's a hard thing to throw at you, but you're probably better positioned than anyone to try and define it. Yeah, Lucy does a great job. I, she just sent me that book and I'm just starting it. And I, it's you know, great I think book, it's, actually. it's a great compliment to your new book. Yeah, exactly. And as she says at the very beginning of the book, you know, uh, nobody can agree, including the people who um, are in the business of uh, trying to help those with mental illness. Even they can't agree about exactly what the the right the right definitions would be. But but I don't think we need to overcomplicate it. Look, um, uh, to be very clear, we all suffer. And there is despair. We all, everybody, Tom? We, we all, you, you don't live unless you suffer. Suffering is part of life. Uh, despair and joy, you know, emotion is part of life. But when we talk about mental illness, we're talking about something categorically different than sadness or despair or suffering. In fact, often when people are, when they have major depressive disorder, they're not sad. They're not despairing. They're numb. They're dead. And, and they will often tell you that. I feel dead inside. And part of the treatment is to help them to actually feel again, to actually get back that kind of sense of of emotion, which they're unable to unable to access. That's part of what these illnesses are like. They really separate us from a whole part of ourselves. So whether it's the avoidance that comes with anxiety disorders, the hopelessness and helplessness that comes with mood disorders, or the, the break with reality that comes with psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, these are very serious, often deadly, uh, disorders that affect the brain. We know these are related to misfirings in particular brain circuits, and they are severely uh, impactful, not only for the person who has them, but for the per person around them, people around them. So it, we can argue about sort of the, the vague line between where health gives up and disease begins, 
no question that sometimes that is unclear. Um, and we're probably not as great at defining what is mental health. I think Freud said it's the ability to uh, to love and to work. That's not a bad not a bad definition. But but when it comes to saying what is mental illness, I think it's best to sort of get down into the details that you know that kind yeah, of. I mean, is it like that famous remark? I think it was from a Supreme Court justice about pornography. You know it when you see it. I mean, for you as a doctor, at least, you know it when you see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, we, it, but I think most people would understand when they see homeless people on the street in San Francisco who are talking to themselves uh, and are clearly in a, you know, in a different, uh, in a different cognitive realm. Um, they've got something. I mean, that's, a, they've got a real significant brain disorder. Um, and one of the things, Andrew, I want to, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, one of the reasons I'm so happy to chat with you is we have to be able to do better than allowing them to die on the street. Uh, there has to be a way to make sure that people with these brain disorders aren't simply are untouchables, that they end up either in our jails or prisons or homeless. That's not, that's not mm -hmm. justice. That is not that's not who we are. We should be able to do better for people with this. We call them serious mental illnesses. Uh, yeah, and I, and I certainly yeah. want to come later in our conversation to social justice and homelessness and race. Um, but I, I want to come back to something I thought you said at the beginning. When, in, in your opening remarks, and, and please correct me, Tom, if I'm if I'm wrong. You seem to suggest that. What's changed is our ability to deal with mental illness and that mental illness in 2022, in February 2022, isn't in terms of mental illness in society. It isn't dramatically different from perhaps mental illness in 2012 or 2002 or, or 1992. Let me just quote some numbers at you, numbers that you have in your book. Uh, today, roughly 40% of young people report increased anxiety and depression. Suicide has increased over 30% since 2000. Drug overdose deaths are up more than fivefold. People with schizophrenia are dying on average 20 years earlier. People with serious mental illness have become our untouchables, 80% unemployed, and so on. I don't need to tell you these numbers. They're in your book. Hasn't something then changed? It, independent of the health system itself, which is obviously struggling to cope. Fair enough. You know, Andrew, I think there are there are changes in select areas, right? So I, I don't think there's good evidence that the prevalence of schizophrenia or even bipolar illness has gone up. But there's very good evidence that uh, the rate of mood disorders and anxiety disorders in young people has clearly gone up. Uh, they're not in treatment, but if you do epidemiological surveys, you see this. And it's gone up considerably more with COVID. So the, the impact of COVID in terms of mental health is quite different than the impact in terms of physical health. The, the, as you know, I mean, most of the deaths have been in people over 50. Most of the mental health consequences have played out for people under 30. And we're seeing this with, with pretty dramatic increases, at least in the way people self-rate their depression and anxiety. I suspect that might have been true 
during the influenza epidemic of 1918. It's probably true during the depression of 1930. May have been true during, um, you know, even during parts of the Cold War when we were under particular threat. So I, I think there are times in the past when the population has been stress tested. This is such a time clearly and young people are responding to that with increasing symptoms of anxiety and depression. So that I grant you has gone up particularly with COVID. I just wanna be clear that we, we had a problem before COVID and while there were increases even then, and you could see the increases beginning around 2005 or so with more depression in uh, people under the age of 25, overall, unlike what one sees with you know, the emergence of a new epidemic, there hasn't been a profound increase in the prevalence of any of these disorders. The one exception has been in the, the amazing increase in drug overdose deaths. And that is, I mean, that is, if we weren't talking about COVID and we were having a discussion about what are the public health crises of the day, yeah, it would be drug overdose deaths, which this year surpassed 100,000. Um, 15 years ago would have been certainly under 10,000. Tom, how much of that is connected with the crisis of Big Pharma? I'm sure you know the work of John Abramson as well. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's, as you know, extremely critical of, of Big Pharma, uh, even wrote a book sickening how Big Pharma broke American health care. Is the crisis of mental health in America bound up in the crisis of Big Pharma? I don't think so. Um, you know, there's, there is a piece of it that we can dig into where, um, and certainly, you know, if we're talking about drug overdose deaths and we have to talk about opiates and then we talk about marketing of opioids right. in, the, in the 90s, absolutely. So that's, for me, a different chapter. I don't actually think about drug overdose deaths as, uh, specifically part of the mental health crisis. While it's related and it can be either a cause or a consequence, um, when we talk about serious mental illness, that's there's a pharma connection there, but let's, let's talk about that for a moment because it's not maybe what one thinks. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of narrative of, that in America, you know, we are over-medicating everybody. Um, and there are certainly people who are on medication who don't need to be. But the data would say something quite different. Uh, when you do the epidemiology, what's most striking is the number of people who have mental illnesses which could benefit from medication who aren't getting treated. In fact, the real story about our mental health crisis is not an over-treatment story. It's an under-treatment story. It's that uh, more than 50% of people who should be in care are nowhere near it. And that is particularly true for that group of young people who, as I said, have had an increasing prevalence of depression and anxiety. When you look at that population, more than 60% are not getting treated for it. So and it's interesting because the anecdote and the anecdotal, I wouldn't say evidence, but the rumors are that this young generation, our kids are more medicated than any other generation in the past. Are you saying that's incorrect? I'm saying that it's, and it may be different during COVID. I don't know. I don't think so. 
But if you look at the epidemiological studies that were published between, let's say, 2015, 2020, what you see is what's most prominent in them is that there is this, this shifting up in prevalence, but that the vast majority of these kids are not in care. Now, why is that? Because, you know, it's those two things don't seem to go together because we all have, we've all heard that narrative that, hey, uh, this is the generation, I call them the COVID generation, and they're all in treatment. And in fact, they have much less stigma. They, you know, their, their attitude towards getting mental health care is uh, in some ways healthier than I would say their parents would be. I mean, they not, they're not nearly as avoidant. But um, it doesn't show up in the data. It doesn't show up in the studies. You don't see uh, a huge overuse or you don't see that. I mean, you see like high levels of, for instance, um, stimulants being used in a certain class and a certain group of kids. Um, but it's equally true that you've got under treatment as well as having over treatment. So it's I think we have to figure out a way to make sense of those two narratives. And, and really what it, it spills into this idea of a mental health crisis in which the problem really isn't so much access to treatment, it's quality of care. And that's where we're failing. Uh, I am speaking with uh, Dr. Thomas Insel, the author of Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. First half of this show, I'm afraid, has been rather depressing, rather dark about the rise of mental illness. The second part, I think, will be a little bit more cheerful, a little sunnier. We're going to talk um, with Tom about the path from mental illness to mental health. So I'm going to take a short break now. We'll be back in about 60 seconds, Tom, and then you can get all cheerful on us. You can tell us how we can fix all this. So can't we'll wait. Talk in about 60 seconds. So put. Put your smiley face on, Tom, and we'll be back with you in a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page, um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse 
for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Thomas Insel, the author of Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Uh, many of you will know Tom because he is currently the uh, mental health czar in California. He's run a series of very important institutes, including the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, but he's also been in and out of uh, private companies. He's a Bay Area-based guy. He's worked with a, a Google company. He even worked with his daughter at a startup. So, Tom, to, to kick off how we, how we begin to get from mental illness to mental health, do you, need, do you think we need to rethink the role of government in all this, that perhaps um, government can help traditional centralized government, but private enterprise, companies like Google, startups, uh, even private sector style politicians like Gavin Newsom, the current governor of California, they have the right strategy for, for addressing today's crisis? Oh, it's, it's, it's a great question because there's a lot going on. I, as you were asking it, I was thinking about, it sometimes occurs to me, there's this old quote from um, Samuel Johnson, in which he says, how small of all that human hearts endure the part that laws and kings can cause or cure. And, and it is probably important to remember that there are limits to what government can do in terms of the, the world that we all sit in. And, and it's, you know, at the end of the day, this is a very, mental health is a personal issue. It's an issue that has to do with uh, how, we, how we come to the world and how we, um, how we live in it and how we come to accept ourselves in it. That said, um, we have a crisis of care and the crisis of care in part uh, has to do with our failure to provide for those among us who can't support themselves because of having a brain disorder. And this is where government has to have a role. Now, there was a time when that was recognized at the federal level, 1963, October 31st, one of the last, actually was the last bill signed by President Kennedy before he was assassinated, was the Community Mental Health Act. And as he signed that bill, he sat uh, next to the Oval Office in what's called the cabinet room, and he, he made a recording. And the recording, he said, this is what we're doing with this bill. And at the end, he said, I want America to know that those people with mental health, and he also added mental retardation, which was his, his own version of this, um, should no longer be alien to our affections or apart from a life in the community. And the problem right now is uh, 60 some years later, they are indeed uh, still alien to our affections. There has not been a commitment. There's not even much awareness from leaders about political leaders about the need to uh, provide for care for people with serious mental illness. Now, I wanna be clear because um, when when Governor Newsom was elected, uh, before he even took office, he asked me to come up and spend some time with him. And I went up to Sacramento. We sat in this warehouse that he was using uh, prior to his first day, uh, prior to the inauguration. And we had breakfast. He came in. And the first thing he said to me was, you know, I used to be mayor of San Francisco. I thought, yeah, I, I know that. He said, when I was mayor, 
He said, I, I was so focused on uh, homelessness and the crowding in our jails. And it wasn't until after I got out of office that I realized that those two problems had a root cause. And that root cause was untreated serious mental illness. And I never recognized that. And I don't want to make that mistake as governor. So what's happened? What have we seen? I, I think it's historic. We've seen a complete transformation of how we use Medicaid in California. We call it Medi-Cal in this state for people with serious mental illness. We're rolling out what is the closest thing to a whole person care, uh, complete uh, overhaul that provides not just medical care, but a range of services to help people with serious mental illness recover. This is historic. It's spectacular. Uh, it is, I think, a model for the entire United States. It's interesting, uh, Tom, that this is coming at the, the state level rather than the federal level. Is that coincidental, do you think? It is not, because up until two or three years ago, the federal government was missing in action on all things related to mental health. Now, that's not to say they didn't spend money on it. They, they, they put a lot of money into mental health care. In fact, the federal government's the largest payer for mental health care unlike for medical diseases where you have commercial insurance, for people with serious mental illness, it's all Medicaid all the time. That's how much, you know, $68 billion is going into support people with serious mental illness and a few other uh, diagnostic groups from federal dollars in Medicaid. But that is not a program. That is a matching of what states are spending. So states apply to CMS, the Medicaid agency. They say, this is what we want to cover. If they get approved, the states do all the leadership. They set the programs out. They provide the services, and they build the federal government, and they get reimbursed. What's changing in the last two or three years is for the first time since 1963, the federal government is saying, as Kennedy did then, hey, states, you're not doing the things we need to have done. So we now have a new requirement for a crisis Mental health crisis number 988 will replace what we're using today, which is the suicide prevention hotline as of July 16th of this year. We have a new program for helping people with their first episode of psychosis to recover. It's called the Coordinated Specialty Care Program, 240 clinics across 50 states, federally funded. And we have a new program very much like the community mental health clinics of the 1960s that Kennedy set up called Certified uh, Community Behavioral Health Centers, CCBHCs. There are 340 of those across 40 states. And those are really an interesting new effort, federally funded. This is a not just we're giving money to the states, the states will figure out what to do. This is actually putting programs into place with direction from uh, the federal government. That's a whole new story. And it's one that we haven't seen literally since the 60s and 70s. You talk about the crisis as sort of reflecting the soul of the nation. And of course, one of the things most affecting the soul of the nation throughout its history has been race. You touched on that earlier in terms of the homeless communities in San Francisco. Uh, we've done so many shows on this. I had a, a wonderful guest a few weeks ago, Michael L. Walker, who went to jail and talked about the impact uh, on mental health of the experience. What can we do in terms of reforming our criminal justice system to also address 
the crisis of mental health. And uh, as well, of course, as to address the, the profound uh, injustices associated with race in both. Well, those are two issues. You know, my basic stance is that um, the criminal justice system doesn't need to be in this space, right? I think that is a gross injustice. But it is, for better or worse. It's unavoidable, isn't it? No, it is avoidable because it never used to happen. This is a new phenomenon. If people don't understand that, in the same way, we haven't always had this degree of homelessness. When I came into the field in the 1970s and 1980s, we didn't incarcerate people because they had a brain disorder. This is like a pretty strange thing to be doing. And we now think that's acceptable. We think that's actually inevitable. It's neither. We don't need to have people with schizophrenia going to jails and prison in order to get treatment. How can that be right? How could that be optimal for anybody? So that needs to be fixed and it can be fixed. Uh, and I say that because we never used to do it. So there must have been a way we avoided it. And remember, it's not because we have a lot more people with serious mental illness. It's because we have a lot fewer beds. We don't have the hospitals. We don't have the healthcare infrastructure or the capacity to be able to take care of them in the healthcare system. So, hey, jails have become the default mental health system. Now, I don't know of, of a warden of a jail who wants to be doing that. And I don't know of, uh, you know, that there's a police force that really wants to have their police officers serve as social workers. That's not what they signed up to do. They're public safety officials. They aren't really in the mental health business or shouldn't be. So the, the real question, Andrew, is how do, you, how do you get out of this? You know, we got stuck in it. How do we get out of it? And, and there's a way. And it's, it's not that complicated. Part of it is you have you start by making sure that when there's a crisis call, you're not sending cops with guns, you're sending a social worker, you're sending a nurse, and you're sending a peer, somebody who's actually had lived experience. And they don't show up in a, you know, in a cop car, they show up in a van. And they can spend time talking to you and the family and anybody else to help you through the crisis. But if you do need to be institutionalized because you're not in a safe place and you're a danger to yourself or someone else, you don't go to jail and you don't even go to a medical surgical emergency room. You go to a crisis stabilization unit that's prepared to help you get through this crisis. And you may stay for 23 hours in some units or be referred on to a seven or 14 day crisis unit in other places. This is what happens in Tucson, in Phoenix, in Austin, in lots of parts of this country, but it's not happening everywhere. And it, we're trying to build that out in San Francisco. I think the plan is spectacular. It's super interesting. We can do it here in a way that's even better than what's been done elsewhere. So I'm excited about this opportunity. But we have to say that the current system is a gross injustice, particularly for people of color who are the most likely to end up being either hurt by police or incarcerated for having a mental illness. And we have to say, look, within 24 months or 36 months, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Now that's not to say there won't be anybody in our jails and prison with mental illness. Of course there'll be. All I'm saying is that the prevalence of schizophrenia and bipolar illness and severe depression in the city jail should not be any higher than it is outside the city jail. 
And that's unfortunately not true. 5% of the population has a serious mental illness. 25% of the jail population has a serious mental illness. That's not right. Tom, uh, I'm proud that you're working with Gavin Newsom. He's been on my show several times, actually. Um, and, so and not- if I could just, I should probably correct that. I did work uh, with the administration in the first year, but over the last, uh, what has it been, almost two years. You mean the Biden less- administration? No, no, with, with the Newsom administration. So oh, okay. I, I volunteered to help the governor um, as bizarre, you're kind of working with him, right? I was. I'm not. I'm actually not actively in that role anymore. I still advise Mark Golly, the uh, oh, I see. the Health and Human Services Secretary. But over the last two years, during COVID, I have not been involved. Um, I've been following what they're doing with interest. And if I can put in a plug for one other thing, you should be watching, which is just stunning, is that this governor and this uh, this legislature in California. Uh, in the last six months, have decided to make this huge investment in child and youth mental health issues. $4.4 billion investment. By my calculation, that is 100 times bigger, at least 100 times bigger than any previous commitment to, to youth mental health. And what's in that package is utterly transformative. It's so interesting. Now, it's early days. We're still right. getting... Get, you know, getting started on all that, but but I think we can we can expect to see um, some really exciting new initiatives that allow us to get upstream from this whole problem. So we're not just in a crisis all the time, dealing with people when they're their, at their at their worst and their most vulnerable moments, or dealing with people who have chronic and persistent me- mental illness, a kind of stage four. You know, what this new effort allows us to do is to move way upstream help to future-proof a generation so that they're less likely to become disabled and less likely to develop some of these illnesses we've been talking about. Well, you are, uh, uh, for, for better or worse, a veteran of, uh, of, of some of the political challenges. You gave an interesting interview I, I was listening to earlier about why we're afraid to discuss mental illness. Um, in terms of politics, is the issue ultimately that we're not collectively as a society willing to address it? Or is the issue really political will and money and resources? Yeah, Andrew, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, for one thing, this is not, it's not really a political issue as much as a personal one. When I was in Washington, I was always fascinated by this because I, you know, I'll confess that I tend to think of mental health mixed in with social justice issues through a rather progressive lens. And yet the people who would come to me to want to talk about mental health issues and what they could do about it were some of the most conservative Republicans in Congress. And some of the people I worked with, uh, especially during the Bush years, but even during the Obama years, were people that I wouldn't really have much, much agreement with or alignment with on almost any other issue, but they turned out to be the real champions on trying to focus our mental health care system on the needs of those with serious mental illness. Um, and I, I learned from that experience that this is, this is not a political football in the way that so many other issues are. But the other side of that is as we talk about it, 
we have to find the right language because there's a there's a language right now we've become so tribal and there are certain terms that like if i say look i think about mental health or mental illness as a social justice issue i've immediately alienated 40 percent of the population that's just not helpful but if i say this is an issue about fairness it's about thriving it's about what do you want for your children and their children most people can relate to that and they can understand words because it's personal. Then. Words matter. And you reminded us, Tom, at the beginning in terms of focusing on semantics. I want to talk uh, about something else. I'm not sure if anyone's ever asked you this. We, we talked about, no, oh, you've talked about mental health being the soul of the, reflecting the soul of the nation, perhaps also the planet. Um, we had the author of Losing Eden, young another British woman, Lucy Jones, on the show last year. Um, arguing that some of the crisis of mental health is connected with our loss of connectivity with the natural world, um, particularly with the earth. Is this a bit fuzzy for you or is there something in that, Tom? Uh, I used to think it was fuzzy. I don't think that way anymore. I mean, I, we just, you know, I, part of my life and, and the, you know, the advance of the book has gone into starting a digital publication called Mindsight News. Uh, that's mind, S-I-T-E, sitenews.org. And we just did a piece in Mindsight News. Uh, Diana Cap, one of our freelancers, did a piece on what she called eco-anxiety. And the anxiety people are feeling uh, from being on a planet that's, um, that's degenerating in so many ways. And, and I'll confess, you know, I've been less... Uh, less receptive to that idea and thinking that ah, this is kind of a kind of a soft science approach. A bit too San Francisco, a bit too Bay Area. Maybe. And then I then uh, and, and what was this about two years ago, actually, just before the pandemic, I I went up to Lake County. I don't know. Andrew, do you know where Lake County is? Have you been up there? No. Where is it? Yeah. Lake County is about uh, two and a half hours north of San Francisco. It's a beautiful part of the state. So it's, it's near Sacramento or uh, uh, it's, it's, the it's north of Napa, uh, just okay. straight up from Napa, two hours. And um, it's a spectacular area, so scenic. But it's the place that was really hammered by the first set of fires in 2007. Oh, so that's where Paradise is. Uh, that's a little bit east, but that'll give you, that's Butte County, but it'll give you the same idea. In, in those counties, um, what you see is... Uh, it's just a mental health crisis in so many ways. I mean, you have a whole, Lake County, 50% of the county was burned and you have an entire population that has lost their livelihoods, their homes, their communities. Uh, and what the, re the result is people are all living in RVs. It's a little bit more like a refugee camp than a typical, than, than what it was, let's say 10 years ago. Uh, there's no question uh, that the people who are left behind, because many, many people have left altogether, but those who couldn't leave and ended up staying, uh, are facing what is it's just a horrific situation in terms of their mental well-being. So I guess I'm maybe less sensitive to eco-anxiety in that kind of sense that uh, I'm worried about what's happening to um, the, the ice shelf and the coral reefs. Yeah, I get that. People can worry about that. But when you see what happens in a community that has been devastated by fires, which are driven by climate change, and you realize that that's going to happen at 
at, at just a, spec, a, a huge scale that you know large parts of Bangladesh will be underwater. Large parts of our planet are going to face what Lake County and Butte County have endured over the last two or three years. Uh, then you start to worry and you think, hey, how are we going to be able to support a population that's under that kind of threat? Tom, I got to ask you the the social media question. I'm sure people ask it to you every day. What is the role of social media, particularly in the mental illness of young yeah. people? Uh, Dr. Ronnie Cohen uh, talked extensively about this. We rarely have a show where someone doesn't address the impact of social media and the digital revolution on our sense of unhappiness. What's your sense of this? Yeah, yeah. So, so. You got to know. I'm, you know, at heart, I'm a scientist. I spent most of my career in a lab, and and you know, to be a good scientist, you're always questioning questioning the prevailing narrative. You're always looking at, you know, you, you don't believe the wisdom of the crowd, and you're always assuming that whatever the dominant paradigm is in science, it's probably wrong. And so, your job as a scientist is not only to question it, but to overthrow that paradigm with great experiments and great data. On this question, I'm going to do that. I mean, I, yeah, I, there's, yeah, I'm not going to argue that social media has been part of the problem. Of course, it's been part of the problem. Everybody says that. Everybody knows that. We all have that experience, especially during the pandemic. And any of us who have kids or grandkids can see it play out. What I want to ask is the flip side of that question, and that is whether social media can be the part of the solution, because it feels to me that one of the great deficits of our mental health care system, as I mentioned before, is that people aren't engaged with it, that they're almost every place except in the care system. So yeah, they are homeless, they are in jails, they are living in someone's basement, and they are largely online. So the question I would ask is, could we take that last opportunity, that chance that a lot of, especially young people, are spending so much time either gaming or on social media and make that the opportunity to engage them in the kind of care that really matters and really helps. We have an initiative underway now through the Mental Health Coalition to begin that conversation with most of the major social media companies. And they're actually quite receptive. Now, whether this will go forward or not, I don't know. But it's a chance to ask, could we change that narrative? Could we actually create a kind of pre-competitive cross-company effort that says, you know, with a huge increase in suicide in young people, maybe we should be doing more to try to make sure that we reverse that trend. They're on our sites. We may be the last one to see them before they take an overdose or they jump off a bridge. Did we miss an opportunity? Could we be doing more? And that's a question I think the companies are asking, we at the Mental Health Coalition are asking, and we're trying to say, let's, let's think differently about this. Okay, you can bash the companies all you want. That's, you know, that's very popular to do now. Everybody wants to, to, wants to join the tech lash. But you can't argue with the fact that they have solved the engagement problem. In fact, they may have turned it into an internet addiction problem. Mm. Let's use that. And let's use that to be able to help somebody in a way that we haven't been able to do in our brick and mortar or even sometimes in our telehealth mental health system. 
thinking differently is a term that Apple has used to sell products. Um, but it's also something that you've discussed on a number of different levels. You, I saw a really interesting piece you wrote uh, with uh, Danielle Schlosser um, last September about a renaissance for psychedelics filling a, a long-standing treatment gap for psychiatric disorders. So thinking differently in a, in a quite literal sense, we had the um, Columbia University professor Carl L. Hart on the show recently. I'm sure you know his book, uh, Drug Use for Grown-Ups. Uh, are psychedelics... Uh, part of the conversation possibly uh tom is it something that we need to address thinking differently on on a couple of different levels both scientifically and culturally i think so but not in the way that you might presume and the reason i wrote that piece and the reason i'm excited about what people are calling this psychedelic renaissance is that when uh you look at the groups that are developing mdma for ptsd or psilocybin for depression, they're talking about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And one of the things I talk about in the book and that I talk about a lot in conversations like this is that one of our failures in mental health care is that we say, you know, either you're gonna get medication or you're gonna get psychological support or you'll get something else. But nobody starts to think about how do we put them together now, the irony about the psychedelic renaissance is that they're talking about giving psychedelics in the context of therapy. In fact, the MDMA folks say the drug itself is only important to the extent that you're able to be prepared for it psychologically and you're able to integrate it after the experience. So they have a kind of bundled and pretty well-structured psychotherapy experience that helps people to take the medication and grow with it. We aren't doing that when we give antidepressants or antipsychotics, you know, the, the, we treat them as if there's a magic bullet. You know, I imagine for a moment, Andrew, that, you know, somebody said, I want to learn to play the violin. Do you have a pill for that? Mm. You'd say, well, actually, you know, if you have a tremor, we can help you with a pill could help with a tremor, but it actually takes some work. It actually takes learning some skills and it's going to take some time. It's the combination. We'll help you with your tremor and we're gonna help you learn and get those skills. That's what we're not doing here. And yet with psychedelics, that's very much the model people are talking about. So do I think that psychedelics in and of themselves are gonna be the revolution? No, but I think by combining them with psychological treatment, there's, there's something here that is better than what we're doing today. Well, you're beginning to cheer me up, and I'm sure you've cheered up many people uh, in the audience. Uh, Thomas Insel's new book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, tells a lot of truths that people won't want to hear, but it also offers a path to mental health. It's a very important book. It's out next week. I think anyone with any interest in this area, and we all have interest, need to read it. Congratulations, Tom, on the book. What else should people be reading in mid-February 2022? Oh, let's see. What have I finished recently? I, re I just read uh, Sam Quinones' book, The Least of Us. Yeah, Sam was on the show. That's a talk about yeah. a dark book. That's yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Andrew? What, what was it? Oh my God! Yeah, that's a terrible. What did you think? Uh, yeah, um, it's it's a it's a downer. <laughs> it's a bummer. Mildly. <laughs> yeah. 
but but I'm glad I read it. I, I learned a lot and I loved his first book, which I thought was brilliant. Um, that, the other book that I, you know, it's been out for a bit now. Uh, it's a wonderful book about uh, this this problem of the incarceration of people with mental illness. It's called Waiting for an Echo by mm. Christine Montross. Somebody you might want to have on the yeah, show. Yeah, I'd love to. Do you know her? I do know her. She's oh, spectacular. I'll uh, jump on you and you'll have to introduce me. We'll do it. She's a psychiatrist, works in jail psychiatry, but uh, kind of like the conversation we've had here, she said, yeah, this is a this is a friggin' mess in the United States. So she goes to Norway and spends time in the prison system there. And she says, ah, so this is what it could be. Uh, it's, it's actually quite an uplifting book when mm. you realize that- well, I, I, I think the thing with all this stuff is, it requires talking and listening. I mean, there are no simple fixes. There are no pills. This is an ongoing, endless conversation which we need to have. And I'm thrilled, Thomas, that I've had this conversation with you and that the conversation continues in your book. It's a, uh, it, it's a conversation without end. You don't fix everything, but you direct us. Um, Tom, to end, as I'm doing with all my guests these days, I wanted you to tell me who runs the world. Thomas N. Insel, MD and master of all forms of uh, analysis of um, of mental illness who runs the world well yeah I, the best i could say is who runs my world um and and i like to think that i do i mean i think each of us at the end of the day are held accountable for our own experience so um and Andrew, I would hope that you run your world. I don't know that, you know, to go back to my Samuel Johnson. Run it as well as you run your world. I uh, try, but it's a bit chaotic. Uh, you seem to do quite well. But, well, you know, Tom, back real, to real honor to have you on the show. And I'd love to get you back because this is such an important conversation on so many levels, medically, culturally, politically. And you bring so much wisdom and calmness to it, which is also reflected in your book. So congratulations on healing. I hope we all heal. And we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you, Thomas Insel. Thanks so much for having me.